Welcome to my podcast newsfeed about the intersection of tech, media, and politics, which is where a lot of the action is right now. I am joined by Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, and I'm having flashbacks to the <laughs> early parts of my career that we spent together in the basement of what of New York City Hall. Um, and this episode is is more or less a sequel to a wonderful podcast that Glenn Thrush used to do for Politico that you should um, listen to and that, that Maggie and Glenn did together. But before we get to that, I actually wanted to just uh, the, Donald uh, Trump gave an interview to Reuters where he said the job was harder than he thought. And I arrived this morning to find Maggie asleep on a couch at, here, at, uh, <laughs> here, at, here at BuzzFeed My job is harder than I and thought, And I wondered too, if your but... jobs are harder than you thought, if uh, the job of covering Trump is harder than you thought. My job <laughs> – thank you for having us because this is yes. a lot of fun. Um, in concept, I'll tell you if the reality means yeah. it shortly. Um, the, I, I don't think that um, – it's not surprising to me that he's sort of a whirlwind, but I did think the pace was going to become more human and to scale at some point than what we saw in the campaign uh, once he actually took office. And instead, it's been the same. You know, you're just my mother-in-law has this line about my father-in-law where she used to describe him as a one man swarm. And, and that is what Trump is. Right. So it's like it begins at six o'clock and then it goes until 11 and there's the tweets and these interviews yesterday like these were clearly not strategic these were interviews i can hear that clicking i'm taking a glenn picture. is glenn has interrupted this to take Sorry a picture of, of of maggie and so i should uh, and it was i don't know why he's doing that I, but I, I, um, did i screw everything up no no it's okay i wanted to actually go back to like before sorry no no i just was going to say that like the the i don't think i think what he's so much of what he's doing is not strategic i mean like there's some strategy and then there's just him sort of needing to ventilate. So, like, he does these ventilating interviews, and then he says, like, seven, like, unbelievable things, ranging from just, like, interesting to, like, somewhat shocking. And there's just a lot of time spent sort of picking through to figure out what's what. It's it's a, it's amoebic, right? I mean, the thing about it is you, you can come in, it's... A different presidency each day. It's really like you never know what you're going to get. Um, there are days. Oh, <laughs> damn it! Sorry about that. So it's okay, not. So, so it's not an airplane. Okay, okay, we are shutting. I am shutting off the phone. Um, no, it really is. It's like uh, there's an enormous amount of variation because I think he's prone to sort of these impulsive outbursts. He clearly likes to express himself, but then there'll be periods where he locks down or tries to impose a strategic imperative on himself, or some aide yells at him, or hope tells him, <laughs> or Hope Hicks, who, by the way, is an extraordinarily important advisor. I don't think people give her enough credit. Yes, that is very true. Is somebody who who is able to sort of, probably more than anyone in his circle, is able to sort of control him and moderate him. So what you have is just this enormous uh, amount of variability. And, you know, a lot of people put him on the couch. I, as somebody, I think the three of us, is it pretty safe to assume we all have ADHD? Probably. Right. So, something. Acquired. And We've got something. Right. Takes and, and I would just say, sitting across from the guy, takes one to know one. Yep. Uh, I, I just think the characteristic of this guy is 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 ADD, and I think we just bounce around all the time, and that is exhausting. And as the parent of uh, 13-and-a-half-year-old twins with ADD, I find my home and office life to be strikingly similar. So, so anyway, so en- enough about Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, I, I, you know, we should talk about ourselves here. That's Let's good. never um, forget we're so the real story, friends, not and, them. And 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 um, I wanted to play a quick, quick clip from the Glenn, the famous Glenn Thrush Maggie Haberman podcast. My favorite episode of a number of very good ones. Thank you. 
Talk, just describe who was downstairs with us. Sure. At that point, it, it was you, me, Frank Lombardi from the Daily News, um, Dan Janison at Newsday, who you and I are both still friends with. Yep. Uh, I think that was it, wasn't it? There might and have been and more. then Ben Smith oh, came. Oh, right. And Ben Smith came. Right. And Ben Smith came. And I said, what is with, who is this kid? Is I this thought kid? I couldn't stand him. I thought he was obnoxious. Hi, Ben. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. <laughs> so what was wrong with me? You, you, I, I don't know. I was actually just listening to myself thinking, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you were the, you were the incubus. You were the incubus. You were, yeah. you were, you were the new really smart person. And as Glenn said, um, we were all going to work for you someday. Um, and as we sit here in your mogul pod, um, I, under, I understand, I understand why he, why he thought that. You were extraordinary. I mean, we that really hadn't experienced any. No. Anybody like you. I mean, the, the interesting thing is covering City Hall was, um, first of all, it's a great rotating cast of characters. And I, I, I actually remember the first time I think you and I ever spoke. It was at some fire department event. And you sat next to me and you recited like three or four articles I'd written like 10 years before. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Yeah. But what I quickly began to realize is how much – and how much preparation that you had done. You have a very easy manner, but you do an enormous amount of preparation with your Okay, this is now getting awkward, and I want to talk about you again. Because I think, like, one of the... I think that in reporting, as probably in most businesses, there are kind of scenes, and people come out of scenes more than out of schools Mm -hmm. or out of sort of formal preparation. And we we sort of came up together in in the basement of New York City Hall. The the Mm -hmm. A-list press room was room nine upstairs, and I was the... I was the scrub reporter for a new conservative daily that... Nobody read the New York Sun. Oh, that's and, not true. And, and sat down in the basement of City Hall across from from the two of you and very quickly thought, oh, my God, if these are, you know, in Maggie's case, like the sixth reporter for the New York Post and in Glenn's case, were you at Newsday or Bloomberg? I was at, at Newsday, yeah. Like, imagine how good the reporters upstairs must be, <laughs> um, which was not uniformly the case. Because you and I sort of learned how to report from listening to you scream at people on both of you, so though particularly Maggie scream at people I, on the phone. I, I think that I learned. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of people who but, I learned how to report from, but you two are are on that top five list. But but I do wonder, like, what about that scene, sort of, and the and like of how, in particular, you two who are now you know the dominant reporters covering the biggest story in the world, kind of shaped that. And I guess I w- I wanted to start by asking each of you, like, when you first encountered Donald Trump. I don't actually remember exactly when I first encountered him. I mean, I know that it was it was at some point in the 2000s, um, possibly a little bit earlier because I got to City Hall in 99. Um, but my memory of him is like the press conference where he boasted that he would rebuild the Twin Towers, right? Because one of my mini beats was rebuilding at Ground Zero after 9-11. Um, and like he was he was seen as like, if not gold, like a very, very like shiny sort of somewhat valuable metal commodity at the post like he was this sort of gossip fodder um he was a quote machine he was treated with a certain reverence um he was known by all the editors you know half of the people at at Newsmax the conservative website now are like former New York Post people including the CEO Chris Ruddy uh who talks to Trump a fair amount my main memories of him are from 2011 honestly when he was like sort of faux running for president. And you and I did a piece together at Politico, Ben, that I reread periodically because I actually think it held up pretty well. And it was about, um, I think the headline was like, what is Donald Trump really after? And the main nut graph was, you know, the question is, is Donald Trump serious? And the answer is yes and no. And a lot of what he did... Still true. Right. And like a lot of what he did at the time was like stuff that we saw him do in 2000. 
uh, 15 and 16. It just worked better this time. And now there's a story that you've you've told before, but you they tried to get you to break the story that Donald Trump was running for president. They did. And what happened? So um, Sam Nunberg, they, they hired a bunch of new people. And I remember getting this email, first email I ever got from Hope Hicks. Okay, so this is before the Trump phenomenon was was beginning to like become real, uh, or at least the campaign was becoming real. And in total candor, like I was so dismissive of it because I had gone through that 2011 experience where like during sweeps week uh, for The Apprentice, he announced that he wasn't going to run. And I felt very burned. And so first I get this email from Hope Hicks, who, as Glenn correctly said, is is one of the most valuable people for Trump around, just in terms of somebody who has his best interests at heart. This, you're not just saying to, this because she's a great source. Uh, no, I'm <laughs> no, I'm saying this. Um, Hope has gotten angry at me any number of times, but I appreciate that. That is not actually how I operate, and you know that. Um, Ooh, but this is rough. The, um, but Hope is uh, no, no, we haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> um, but Hope is. Uh, Hope is one of the only people around him who sort of, un- I think, understands him uh, at this point. I think that is a problem for him in the White House is how few people actually know him. But I got this email from her and it was like, I'd like you to meet, you know, I want to I want to set you up with some of the new campaign staffers. We have this campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. And I was like, who? And then like, and I think we had like a couple of weird email exchanges and I had had a, a conversation with Jake Sherman at Politico before I quit Politico in 2014 where we were doing a list about the large field that was going to run for president. And he said, should we put Trump on? This was November 2014. I said, absolutely not. But he's not going to run. I don't want to play this game again. So I get a phone call from Sam Nunberg, who is another Trump aide. And it was May. And he said, Trump's going to declare on June 16th and we want you to break it. And I was at the Times at this point. And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm not writing anything until he's actually running. Like this is, I just did this once before. And so I went to this lunch um, with Trump and Sam Nunberg and Corey Lewandowski and Hope Hicks and Michael Cohen. This was the first time that I was meeting Hope and, and Corey. And we're sitting at the table. And obviously, those listening can't see where we are. But Ben is to my right, which is where Corey Lewandowski was sitting. And Trump was to my left, where my iPhone is sitting. And Trump kept trying to convince me that he was serious. And like he looked really frustrated at one point that I wasn't sort of going into it. And we were there for a long time. And like he showed me... You know, I've been to his office before, but he still showed me around again as if I'd never been there. And like, you know, he like yelled out to the girls who sit outside, the assistants. And then he had like a shoe signed by Shaquille O'Neal. And there was this plaque that Scott Walker had signed. I just anyway. Um, and so and then he and he ran and I still wasn't convinced he would stay who in. Who broke that story in the end? Uh, Bob Costa. What about you, Glenn? Did you cover him when we were in New York? <clears throat> Not a ton. I do remember one thing in retrospect, and that is he left a message on my phone and I never returned it like <laughs> like 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think that's – I mean I do feel like that is the thing that people don't totally – looking back at his career in New York. Like when I was at the New York Observer, I got in you know a little late and it was 2003 or four, and there was a rule. Actually, Gabriel Snyder, who's now – who's been a number yeah. of places and mm-hmm. remind me of this. There was a rule that you couldn't quote Donald Trump because it would be – and I'm repeating Gabriel's story here. It would be 3 in the afternoon on Tuesday. You'd be writing a feature. For instance, everybody's a little bit gay now. Something like that. <laughs> Classic New York Observer feature. And you'd have two quotes. Probably it's still true. But you need three quotes for a bullshit newspaper feature. That's true. And so – you would be like hard up for a quote and be like, oh, I'll call Donald Trump. He'll, he'll talk about anything. Yeah, he's like, and so they will bring the phone to him on the beach in Bali to give right. a bull quote for a random Kind of a feature. gold-plated Hank Scheinkoff. Um, and so that is that is a that is a very inside, inside New York reference. I will tell you but, the first so time. So you weren't allowed to quote him. Well, the first time well, – the actual first time that I was in his presence, as I can recall, was I was 
in I think it's like 1990. I was an intern in the New York State Senate, and my roommate Mike Connolly, who's now a court officer, and I got drunk in the middle of the day, and Trump was really at an, a low point, and he was doing something called the Tour de Trump, a bicycle race, and he made this announcement on the Empire State Plaza in front of the egg. There's like a big mm. building. It's an egg. A performance mm-hmm. center. It's an egg. And Connolly. You know, this is all. To picture Albany is kind of like Brasilia. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly, exactly like Brasilia. It looks exactly. like you're on the edge of the world, but with Rheingold. And he, Connolly manages to push himself into the front row. And I have, I'm having nothing to do with this. And every time Trump says the word Trump, Connolly yells chump. Wow. And he, he was, after about 10 minutes, uh, shall we say, removed to an, to a secure location. By so Trump, that, with some straps. By, probably yeah. by security guys who still work for Donald <laughs> Trump. I was right? going to say, Keith Schiller made his <laughs> first appearance. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing, one defining character of Trump is how, how attentive he has always been to the press. Like, and right, and for much of his career, right, it was That's him calling, leaving messages, and not getting them returned by, like, Made you know by Glenn Thrush from Newsday, yeah, like right? Newsday. Um, yeah, but yeah, but he, you know he always got him returned from certain people, and that was really all he needed. So well, he I think he wanted more, and I he wonder, did want, but he always wants. More. It's the Ed Koch thing. I, I've used this long how as many times. Or, or un, you know he's unavoidable for comment. Exactly. But I wonder how you think about that feedback loop. Like I think whenever you cover anyone, I think it's something political reporters in particular are very aware of. Your reporting is part of the story. You're in their head. You're not just. You're not. You know, this isn't like science writing. You're not observing some phenomenon and writing right. like the the. The reporting is just inevitably part of the fabric sure. of the story, perhaps more so with Donald Trump than with anybody else you cover. And I wonder how you, as a reporter, deal with that, deal with, like, the observer effect. It's a great question. I, I, I don't I don't know that I have a great answer. I mean, I think you just um, – it is really – one of the things that he does, it's, it isn't, isn't just that the reporting is inevitably part of the, of the fabric. Like, he – he wants you to be part of the fabric because if he makes you part of the story, then he can sort of push back on you in a different way or he can make you think about how you're covering him a different way. I mean it isn't just that you know people live in his head. He tries to get in the head of the people who cover him more than I think any politician I've ever seen except for maybe Rudy Giuliani who really did like getting in people's heads. I mean I do feel like Trump is some strange like Obama. hybrid of – Trump is some strange mm. hybrid of <laughs> – so, is, no. someone, is someone yelling from the corner? What's going on here? Chump. <laughs> Chump. Chump. No, Obama did too. No, I think like I, I think the Clintons are different in that you can get in there. That and they, Obama, and they don't try to get in your head the same way. I think people I've failed to sort of realize that there is not that much of a difference between. Well, no, that's let me restate that. That there are striking similarities between Obama and Trump in that regard. Obama leaned very forward with reporters and screwed around with them in a completely different way through absence, right? Not through this kind of gloopy omnipresence, right? When Barack Obama laughed at something you said, it was as if the, the, you know, the clouds had parted. It's a much more powerful effect actually right. than Trump has. And right, it's also a manipulative tactic and also like right, hyper aware of the media, media always trying exactly. to sort of be in on the joke in yes. a way. Yes, Trump, except, but Trump wears it on his sleeve yeah. in a way that Obama never did. He's also more vulnerable. Most, right, in a way that most politicians don't. Um, and there is that thing. We've all talked about this with each other off this podcast, so we'll do it here. That like the degree to which Trump is just kind of like preserved in amber in like this moment in time in like Tom Wolfe's New York in the 1980s where he's just like his cultural references are all like I've been on the cover of Time magazine. Like for how, how many times have you heard Time magazine name checked before this guy became a candidate or the nominee or whatever? Um, 
And well, like, the Bannon cover was the Bannon cover was such a, a problem. Exactly. It, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And honestly, for me, it's like a huge challenge because you have the sort of number one media consumer in America is obsessed with the institutions of the 80s. I think the thing that he does that's different, too, is just that to your point about the becoming the fabric of the story. And Obama did this to a degree, but not like this. And Hillary did this to a degree, but not like this. But like he so personalizes everything with these reporters and us and whomever where it's like it isn't just I don't like what you write. I don't like what you write and you're a bad person. And, and we've like, all, it, I think, been on the receiving end yeah, of this. Yeah, it just goes And to, who cares? Right. So, like from our right. perspective, no, I don't no, think they – No, from you know, our like, perspective, I don't think it yeah, matters. But yeah. I think that what it does is it does gin up a certain type of reader and a certain type of Trump follower to be like, yeah, they really are bad people. And then like because sort of the pre- the commentary at pressure is so different now, and it, it's is, just odd. And is he – do you think – I mean he comes out of a world where this is like this sort of smaller New York world in which that was all a game. Like maybe right. he was calling you and That's screaming right. at you and calling you a liar and a scumbag, but That's that was right. on the phone. That's right. How do you think he sees the sort of mobilizing of his supporters against specific report? I mean – I think he enjoys it sometimes. I mean, I think, and then I think sometimes he doesn't actually realize what he's doing. But I think that more often than not, I think that he likes it because I think he loves feeling like somebody is defending you. Like the one, there are several characteristics, ironically, not in terms of substance, but in terms of style that he and Hillary Clinton share on on sort of management and also their approach to the press. And, you know, he needs the press. I think she'd be thrilled never to be written about again, frankly. And that is the huge difference. But they both just put such a premium on who is defending me at all costs. It is like the commonality of like David Brock on one end and Roger Stone on the other, right? It's just I can draw a direct line. So, And I feel like the, the demanding displays of loyalty yes. and rewarding yes, them. Yes, show me, prove me, yeah. love me in public. I also think the additional element was Trump. And this is something Maggie's been attuned to for a really long time. I'm like a guest user in, you know, like in the Trump uh, ecosystem here. But I, I think <laughs> I think um, is the Roy Cohn uh, yes. factor. And, yep. and it's something you always bring us back to when we're working on pieces because it's very hard. It's very easy to sort of forget that reference point yep. that we think about Fred Trump. You know, what's fascinating is early on, if you look at the pictures in his office, in the Oval Office, um, all you saw behind him, if you remember George W. Bush, he had, and, and Clinton, remember he had that, that um, windowsill behind him yep. was covered with family pictures, right? That's right. If you look early on at the pool sprays and stuff, there's just one picture of Fred Trump. And by the way, it's the same Fred Trump picture that you'd see in Trump Village hanging on the wall. Like and it's still very, the only one there. And it's still the only one there. And, he, and we know this from our reporting. He had told people that, oh, my tchotchkes are all in, mm-hmm. are all in Trump Tower. We're going to have them all brought in. Never Other did. family portrait never did. It's just Fred. So that, and this is something Maggie, as we're working on pieces, is always hearkening back to, the two lessons. And we did that. We did a piece on this about why he couldn't let go of the wiretap tweet. What? Why yeah. he had this obsessive quality. And and she really honed it down to two points. One was uh, Fred Trump's whole dictum of you just never ever stop fighting. Like you just keep fighting, pushing forward. And and then the Roy Cohn thing, which is. You, that you never defend, you just always attack. Yes. And I think those are the object lessons that in addition to kind of his interesting amorphous personality are that's the that's the tip of the spear. Those It's really true. There's a, he he used to he had that quote it was in a Michael Cruz piece in Politico a while ago, but he had this old who quote. Who is brilliant, by the he, way. He's Everybody really good, Michael really, Cruz. really good. And he's done yeah. some really smart yeah. stuff on Trump. But he, he found this old quote 
from Trump talking about Roy Cohn. And one of like one of the, the greatest injustices in the world is that Wayne Barrett has died yes. because he was such a keeper of this whole flame. And everybody should read Wayne Barrett's book about Trump. Um, but he, uh, which is written decades ago at this point, but there was this line that Trump had a long time ago about Cohen, about Cohn, where he said he brutalized, but he brutalized for you. And I do think that is essentially Trump's worldview. It's an Great. amazing line, Great. right? And yeah. like, and I think that like right now, what you're seeing with Trump in terms of approaching the presidency is like just like these dueling impulses of like, sort of like never wanting to admit that he's wrong, but also not wanting to fail. And so he's constantly redefining what a win looks like. And we're about to see that now. You know, he's we now he's going to go past the 100 day mark without health care, getting another vote. And that is going to be a bit of a seismic moment for him. And so I think we're going to see in the next few weeks how he redefines uh, what success is supposed to look like, which to be clear, I'm not saying that that's a legitimate redefinition. I'm just saying how he's going to repackage it and try to sell it. Do you, do you think about Glenn, to the degree to which a New York Times story directly affects him? Like, I don't know if at Time Magazine, when they put together that Bannon cover, they were thinking, we want ben- Steve Bannon removed they were. from the White House. I talked but, with some people, but well, I shouldn't give that away. But yeah, I think they were. I think they knew that that was going to But certainly the, some of the people who were tweeting the President Bannon hashtag was not, I observed that this is President Bannon. They were saying, oh, let's get into Trump's head and get Bannon fired. And I wonder the degree to which you sort of inevitably, as a reporter for an outlet he's obsessed with and incredibly reactive to covering a story, think, oh, I will write this story. He will in- predictably react by killing this policy, firing this aid, or do you not think that? How do you deal with that reality? But, but this is just me. I, I'm, I think I'm different uh, than other people. I, When I'm sitting and writing a story, it's I'm journaling. Uh, like it is such a personal process for me and it's something I get very – I put on the headphones, listen to – Motorhead. Hey, you actually look a lot like you do right now. <laughs> so how do you? How I don't. I never. That, that's a, I never think about impact. You throw the grenade over the wall and walk away. I don't even think of it as yeah, throwing a grenade. I think you will. I think. I, I mean, think you have I, to. I'm in saying. This I'm saying. I don't. I'm no. Saying. I mean, I don't think you have to in this business yeah. per se. I think that it becomes something that, at the times covering this man, you become a little more aware of. Frankly, in the same way that at the times covering Hillary Clinton, you become more aware of because she is also so obsessed with the paper, but just in a different way. But, but like I'm new too. So, no, no, I'm that's what I'm saying. Glenn, Glenn just but so yeah. for instance, so here's a, here's a for instance. Okay, so Alex Burns, um, who we all also worked with at Politico, is now with us at the Times. Uh, he and I covered Trump most of last year together, and we did a piece in August of 2016 about how, like. Just Trump was just stuck in sort of incapable of moving forward mode. And like we were we were being asked to do lots of behind the curtain reporting. And so in this one, I remember we started the reporting for the story. We didn't really think we had that much. And then by the time we wrote the story, we were like, oh, we actually really have like a lot that's going on here. And the story was essentially that the problem was not the staff. It was not Paul Manafort. It was not this one. It was Trump. And Trump read it and like he had like a, a couple of people like intentionally shoved it in front of him people who didn't like Paul Manafort, who was at the time the campaign chairman. Um, And Trump read the story and went bananas and was like so angry for hours. He was like screaming into the phone. And that story was the beginning of the end for Paul Manafort. The Russia stuff was a problem. Think about that. The fact that like, and this is true, I think, with all reporters on all stories, just so much more with this one that what you that, that what you write 
Right, can get a policy passed, but can I get, can, well, a, can but get a staffer but fired. But I'm with Glenn. And the, well, first of all, you just, you whatever just, you we, just sort of block that look, out of your head I, to no, some degree. No, no, those are two separate things. So one is um, th- th- three points. Y- you can't really write with that in mind constantly, number one. Number two, in terms of this could get a staffer fired, I'm always conscious of that kind of a thing about the power of what we do and the impact we have on people's, on lives. people's lives. And I was like yep. that at the Post, in your Post. And I'm like, but less on less on but, big public figures no, 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 than the no, ancillary. No, I'm people. talking about staff. Yeah, yeah, I'm, not talking, yeah, I'm not talking yeah, about the yeah, president. Right, I'm ta- I mean Steve Bannon. Right. right. No, I'm talking about like I, well, I'm not thinking. I don't mean like somebody that high up. I mean somebody like I just. I mean sort of like more of junior course, people. Yeah. Um, but I am. I, I do agree with Glenn that like you can't. At a certain point, you can't think of it this way because then you're just going to be stultified. It's like that's not it's that's paraly- not the purpose it's paralyzing. of what we. It's yeah. not what we're here for. I like, can't we're forget not who to... said this. It's like it's like the like, like McCartney or Lennon said this. You can't. No one ever writes a top forty hit. Like you got to write a song. That's right. And it's just like uh, you just really uh, seriously. And I'm uh, no, it's true. I, I think impact is I think impact is incredibly important, particularly on and that is tr- that is true. I don't think people fully understand that about us doing the way we do our jobs. I Her agree. and I we come across a lot of stuff about staff. Yes, and I have a much higher threshold. It's weird. Me, me I have too. a Same. much higher threshold for publishing. Same. A derogatory story about a staffer than I would about the president of the United Absolutely. States. No, I mean, that's appropriate. Yeah. Same. I mean, and totally. I think, and, it's, and it always has to be that way. And you yep. have to really, you have to weigh all the equities if you're going to go into that. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You two write together. You listen to Motorhead. I mean, I've worked with both of you. Uh, not none of us are laid back people in <laughs> our not? writing styles what? or our or in have or our any styles so, really. And and you listen to Motorhead and sort of zone out when you write and. You know, and I don't. She's talking on two phones. I was going to say, I'm talking on two phones and like watching it, like a back episode of Homeland in the background, and having three children climb all over her. Right? Yes, that too. So and and driving sometimes at the same time. (laughs) All of this happening. All of this happening at once. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Don't get into the passenger seat. Don't don't drive with me. Um, Be be forewarned. The uh, although this is my my scariest driving stories with your now colleague Jonathan Martin. We were in Mississippi driving around and I'm in the passenger seat and I got an email from him and he is driving. That, you've um, never <laughs> told me this before. That's the, uh, that, that which, That's the sort of thing that you would do. That I is think. actually... What barbecue place Maybe it was just to? a forward. Um, how do you do that? How do you guys manage to work to, to write, such, to co-report, co-write, not murder each other? Oh, I mean, there's a little bit of death every yeah, we day. But like, we murder each other every day. But usually, but then we come back and everything's fine. Um, I mean, there is, there is, there is... Of the four of three of you who I have four of you include Jonathan, who I have had some form of collaboration with um, over the last five years, because Jonathan Martin is also now at the Times. Um, the uh, I think that the the one that has sort of the most most sort of uh, filial anger slash upside slash slash combativeness is with Glenn, yes. and because we've but we've known each other the longest. Yeah. I mean, and so and as as as. Ben remembers Glenn. Glenn and I. I also didn't like Glenn when right. I, when I, before we became friends because my default is to hate everyone before I actually <laughs> get too. to know Ma- them. Maggie was also like the cool kid of City Hall. Oh, was, there oh, totally on the steps in her leather jacket, smoking a cigarette. Mike Bloomberg passes the <sighs> introduces the smoking ban, directs it entirely at Maggie at Haberman I miss and her smoking. smoking. So I miss smoking. Do you have any? Um, I mean, any like guidance for people who want to like co-write things with their best friend slash worst enemy slash oldest? Uh, well, you know, collect- do you I have any like demarcation? Lines or? Well, look, I think first of Good all, question. two things. She is, and I'm going to blow some smoke here. I oh, think thank you. She's a phenomenon as a reporter. Oh, she's a compulsive communicator. She can't stop. Um, I she's, can de- she's emailing right now. I can de- That's true. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up. I can definitely stop. Um, we have really complementary skills. Yes, I, I think agree. that is the fundamental 
a reason why the collaboration at the moment works. Because um, I, I think we are always having sort of a conversation about the story. And totally. we're really interested in this stuff, Ben, exactly. as are you. So the, the process of writing a story, you know, it's so funny. People assume we're coming at it from various angles. The basic, the reason why this is fun, the reason why we like working with, with, with each other is because it's just a constant conversation trying to figure this crap out. And we laugh a lot. I mean, like, the, the, yeah. that is the thing. It's like if we were not having fun doing this, I think it would be. And it is not all fun. No, we fight constantly. But we, but we constantly fight. Yeah. I mean, I think, although I don't, actually yesterday was a good day. Yesterday so was a good yesterday day. Because we were fighting like, with other people. Well, we were both fighting with other people a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, Those are the best days. Those are because that's yeah, easy. Yeah. And then the enemy of enemy. No, I mean, I think that. I just think that it's – I think the big key actually is what Glenn said in all seriousness is just that it has to be a running conversation or else it will not work. It cannot be sort of siloed reporting. And so I'll hear something. He'll hear something. We'll bounce it off each other. We'll go make more calls. And we can Rashomon – the it, Rashomon process, by the way, which I don't think people fully understand, like people who aren't in this. Uh, that – behind the curtain reporting and I should just say I'm sitting with – to my left here with Ben who is a master of that himself. Indeed. Um the, the key to all that is to get multiple sources so that you hear 20 ex different versions of the same anecdote and then you're sort of able to determine, make what, a, a yeah. qualitative determination. Ex ex yeah. And in the long term that works because you can figure out which sources are full of shit exactly. and which ones are telling the truth. Exactly. But it, what we have is the added dimension. You know, pe people – a question that I get about our collaboration a lot is don't you guys talk to the same people and aren't – you know, why would you do redundancy? You do redundancy because the same person can tell two different people different versions of a story. Exactly. That is an incredibly important thing to be able to understand because then you go back and you're like, well, I heard this. Exactly. And exactly. we're really committed to finding out what actually happened. You know, we yep. don't just want to put this stuff in the paper. Exactly. We want to actually get it right. So exactly. I think like part of the process here is us bombarding the same person with different questions. That's right. Do you um the right the process of reporting is so like fun and sort of and insane and confrontational and messy in lots of ways, and I think you and I and a lot of po folks in our profession right now have people coming up to you and saying thank you for saving democracy, <laughs> and and I think when you are in the mix of covering these stories, you do not you know put on a sort of clerical collar in the morning, and 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 approach it in that way, and I wonder. How, does that make you uncomfortable? Yamaka. Yes. It would be a yamaka. No, I mean, I think we're, we're doing our jobs, and I don't think we're doing our jobs any different than what we were doing yeah. before. I just think the only difference is that we have a president who is unusually uh, open about undermining the core institutions <laughs> of our democracy and who is less so now that he's in office with the exception of uh, – the press, although he has, he's doing less of that. I don't know if you know. I'm not yeah. trying. To, I, I will say this it's stuff, true. but I'm going to get accused of making excuses for him, which I'm not doing. Um, but he, that I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which that wiretap with two P's, three P's, however many there was, that tweet uh, about how Obama had wiretapped him at Trump Tower. That was a near death experience for him, and he realizes that now. Like he's been more careful on Twitter. He has been doing sort of less. Um, you know, fake news, blah, blah, blah. He occasionally will do one, but that seems like more sort of like tossing out like a steak for the base. Um, he He's going to he, change, but he's not going to tell you he's changing. Right. So he's going to have – he's going to do the fog of war thing and make an adjustment without letting you know that he's making an adjustment. And that's right. If you read these interviews, apart from saying that we're – we're going to go to war with North Korea every three that seconds. That was not that, that was, was not, not optimal. That was not ideal. That was not ideal. He's much more relaxed in this round of interviews. Yes. This hundred day round of interviews, and and and, and arguably and he's got less to be relaxed. Well, about. and he's but he's also yeah. much more reflective, right? I mean, because the thing is, is like he said something to Reuters that like literally like my jaw was hanging, yeah. where he said, 
um, talked about how this is much harder than he had thought it was going to be, that, you know, he had a great life before. I mean, first of all, that is something that, like, you either hear from a president who's on year eight or year four. Well, it feels or, like it's or, been eight years. Or, right. Or from a president who's, like, on his therapist's couch, right? But it's like those are the two Well, he sent realms. that to you. And the, the funny thing was, OK, so we're in the Oval Office. This uh, is, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, something like that. And three weeks, yes. I'm asking him just a pretty, like, a standard question about when was the last time you drove a car? And all, and then he gets into this like apropos of nothing. I don't even think there was like a tangent from the go off. Of. No he attacked anything. you. What was the thing? He what attacked it was you on? was that he brought up. I forget what it was. It was something about how people don't understand something. I don't think it was when you asked him about the car. There was some other question, and he said, "Well, well, you know, it's like George Steph. Did you see George Stephanopoulos said the other day? And when he talks, he like bootstraps one thing onto the other. So that led him to this really regrettable moment I had in retrospect on this week on ABC back in July of 2015, where Keith Ellison did what I will continue to believe was concern trolling about Trump's quote unquote momentum seven months before a vote was going to be cast when he was at 20 percent. Um, and I laughed, and I wasn't laughing at the idea that Trump could win. I was laughing at Ellison doing what I thought was elevating Trump for to, to pick your opponent. Um, but Trump, you know, ABC did me no favors by zooming in on my fat face laughing. And like Trump, of course, has seen that clip a million times now and brings it up periodically. And so he used this as he started talking about Stephanopoulos having said something on one of the shows recently. And he's like, like that time you were on with him and you da, 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 da. And I said, you bring this up every time. And I said, what does this he's have to do right. about cars? I said, well, what, what does it have, have to do with cars? cars? Because we were, talking, says, we, were, we were talking about infrastructure and yeah. Glenn sort of looks around almost like trying to break attention. He goes, what does this have to do with cars? Like a joke. And Trump goes, well, it's like, so we all laughed. And Trump goes, it's like therapy. Is it strange to be that far inside the head of the president of the United States? I try not to think about it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, what are you going to do? I, I mean, think there's I a lot ahead. That's it. I don't. I don't. I think we're all invited in. But here's the thing, dude. That he's he is such a domineering presence in everyone's life. There's a lot of talk about real estate. There's a lot of real estate that you can occupy. There are plenty of vacancies available in the in sort of Trump's headspace. That is, I think that is the major characteristic of of Trump is this dominance of everyone's. I find it oppressive. You'll go into Costco and people are it, talking it is, about this everywhere. guy. It is. It's everywhere. When is, is Estes fever going to break? This is what I want to know. Are we ever going to get tired of this? No. Well, also, I mean, it's funny that you just what exactly what you said. Um, what, what you said is what, the, what I was experiencing one day in the middle of the campaign when I, you know, I was on maybe my sixth month of covering him as my main beat. So it was probably May of 2016. And I'm like listening to the radio and I'm listening to news and they're talking about Trump. And as I'm driving, I'm on the West Side Highway and I look up and it's a this stretch of highway was, you know, paid for by Donald J. Trump. And then I get about 10 blocks further and on my there's Trump place on the West Side to my left. And I felt like I was in like, you know, there's that John Malkovich movie being John Malkovich where there's a scene where Malkovich is in a restaurant and and everyone has everyone is Malkovich and all they can say is Malkovich. I was like, this is where (laughs) what I'm living in. And I don't know where it ends. And like and it's. It still doesn't end. And it's like it is it is exhausting. And I think I do think people are I think there was a while where people thought sort of the show, quote unquote, was fun. I don't think they think that anymore. And I know there was that Washington Post story, you know, co-written by by one of my favorite people, Ashley Parker, um, about Trump's TV viewing habits. And they had a quote in there where Trump said something about how he would never get rid of Spicer because he gets ratings. I'm pretty sure Trump said that a while ago. I don't think that's a recent thing. I think that it is. The, the, there is an erosion that I think is becoming kind of clear to everybody. So, yeah, uh, I want to finish up by talking about kind of you know being inside your heads. The uh, Twitter um, and, and and how you think about this medium where you like we all live a fair chunk of our lives. You and, taught me Twitter. You're who I learned and, it from. And, and and where 
I think you, you, it strikes me, have very different ways of engaging. Like Maggie, like although you are not always like totally calm in your professional <laughs> life, on Twitter you are like, a, you're very cool. Like you always like, you're very unemotional. You like point out facts, you report. Glenn, you are very, very, very emotional on Twitter. Are you like That's letting it get to you? Interesting observation. Am I? Uh, no. Uh, do you like it? I, I mean, love it. I mean, uh, look, I think I come from, uh, I, know if you, I don't know if you're aware of this, I come from Brooklyn. And uh, we're, uh, we're in Brooklyn, <laughs> Sheep said Bay, Brooklyn. And people yell at each other. You know what I mean? And it's like, I find that a very comfortable being berated. So does the president. Is, is my, I don't mind it. I don't mind yeah. getting yelled at. I don't mind the back and forth. The thing that, I, that bothers me is like when people try to define the parameters of the conversation or try to characterize what you're saying, I want to defend. I don't want to just defend myself. I want to engage with people. People and try to trap you into new, how dare a New York Times reporter yeah, say yeah. something. It's like, this is a New York Times correspondent. It's like, duh, I got the business card. Uh, I know. Yeah, this is, there's a lot of that. But I, I just think in, I think in general, first of all, I love it as a medium. I love the back and forth. I think the problem with it is it's weaponized by a lot of people. I hate it as a medium. I think it's – I think it's, and I think especially this is the thing that drove me crazy. To be clear, I don't say it so much that I stay off it. I obviously use it all day long. But like – you remember in 2012, I was like the old scold who was going on and on about younger reporters posting pictures of themselves like from the trail on Twitter and just saying like these are news platforms. What are you doing? Um, and the thing about Twitter that gets me is that, you know, when you – A, because we all use it as our main source of news consumption at this point just in terms of knowing what's yeah, happening. It's, and it's given, the beating heart it, of it's news. The, it's the AP wire essentially at this point. But like, you know, in a traditional newspaper, or you can see by placement – how important a story is to the outlet. Twitter shrinks everything to the same it's, it's damn leveling. size. And it's yeah. just like it's – and so I find that really, really disconcerting. Um, I don't – it's funny because uh, you said I'm very cool on Twitter. I think our our, our friend Mr. Burns um, would not think that I'm very cool on Twitter. I'm not saying Twitter. you're cool in your reaction. Right. You, I mean, in, in the IMs well, you send about But like I would say that like sometimes I have like a, a reaction that's not entirely un-Trump-like in the sense of like I punch down or I will like – respond with like a two-ton brick to a fly or I will and like I don't I don't love that look when I'm like that's something that I need to work the, on the main, look I think like who gives a shit <laughs> like I think well, like I do I think so. it's just I know you I know okay. I know this is where you and I differ on this thing I think it's like first of all I think it's great for as a float for ideas so like if you have a, if you have an observation about something, that you engage agree. people's reaction on stuff. So you throw you, you pop, can test a story. You pop yeah. an idea out there and you see if people respond to it or I'll test a line I just think it's like I think it's a very valuable tool, and I think part of the the trick of Twitter is to screen out the noise. I've been blocking. That is very. I true. block ten people a day. Same. It is the Same. most really? chaotic yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. I have never blocked. I anyone. know you don't believe in blocking. Yeah. I do. I, I want to know what they're saying. No, the I think best. I think people can be so abusive, yeah. and especially and and you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, people and I don't invoke this lightly, but like. The difference between being a man on the internet and a woman on the internet is so it huge. is vast. vast. So like that's. Um, I do block a lot of people, but I also just try to use it as like I try. I do call out people when I feel like to Glenn's point about like the pigeonholing thing or your point or buttonhole, whatever, whatever holing it is, where somebody's trying to make it seem as if you said something you didn't say. There was this. Um, I was reading the Hamilton bio by Ron Cherno that the the Lin Manuel Miranda play is based on, and he's got this whole bit about how it was very common in the day for letters in in sort of common postal areas to be intercepted. And then have those contents sometimes show up in the newspaper. And that's a little what this feels like to me is it's like I'll tweet something and then someone else's spin on that ball shows up somewhere that's else. That's also WikiLeaks, and, right? And it's like, well, yeah. there is that. Well, but what WikiLeaks is also like WikiLeaks is like 
you know, pro, you know, reporting process ripped from context that then gets weaponized and like demonized yeah. as something terrible. And, and I think like the thing I love about Twitter is the right, the openness, the real, the reality, of the response, and and the frust- and and I'm basically like you, I think, Glenn, willing to have arguments forever with people who I feel like are in good faith. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, same, but, no but same. That's exactly that is, right. That is what it but is. But that there exactly is also right. a level of cynical bad faith, that's the right. weaponization. Correct. Here's the other thing, that's and right. this is something I, I discovered in my own little WikiLeaks adventure last year, is, and, he, and here's what's, what is troubling. There's real hate out there. Oh, yeah. And there are people who want to destroy you. Uh, you know, this is not something I'd ever, you talked about impact of stories and how I put on blinders on that stuff. I think for a very long time, and Maggie was not this way, I'd put on blinders about how virulent people could really uh, be, and I discovered that last year. And that really did that was a that was a career altering experience for me to realize that there were people out there who wanted to truly do me harm. Yes, because I don't think any of us really enter the day thinking we want to harm people. No, it's no, it's it's something that I was really unused to, and there has become um, the degree to which sort of what reporters do has been distorted into something else. I mean, I think some of the Take not just not just Twitter, but like Fox News last year with all the WikiLeaks stuff, and I've actually never really talked about this extensively. But the way Fox behaved on certain yeah. shows was reprehensible. I mean, sort of you know re- people who ostensibly were journalists. I think I think you know Bill O'Reilly uh, was one of them, doing segments just based on regular standard practice of like reporters reaching out for comment, um, somehow turning into. They were colluding. I mean, give me a In a break. network where we have – where we reported last week that Sean Hannity advises – and we will say this again – has – during the campaign and continues to call the White House, advises the president on political Which, to matters. Which to be clear, like, you know, Hannity has said, you know, I'm not a journalist. I don't – you know, whatever. Fine. But then – Roger but then Ailes was an advisor right, to the president right. of the United States. They're playing around the margins on legitimate reporters when the collusion is – Hiding in plain sight with Fox News. Look at Fox and Friends. Check out Fox and Friends's feed every Twitter feed every day. It is a press release from the White House. I just think that there's a degree to which there's a number of people who don't understand what we do uh, day by day, and I think that when you have, you know, a major news outlet like that, sort of feeding that, like there was. So, for instance, there's a there's a conservative blogger who has been given White House credentials, and he's written any number of things that are not true about other reporters. And he was tweeting yesterday, secret briefings going on for MSM at the White House. Uh, Gary Cohn and Jared Kushner are leading them. So there have been a series of briefings at the White House by senior – for the 100 days by a number of senior advisors to the president, which, of course, the president wants because while the president denounces the 100-day construct, he has bought into and it hugely. The, as well as off-the-record uh, uh, conversations. And so – right. And so like – and so – but at the same time, like, you know – for A, I'd rather have the administration participating and talking to us. Why wouldn't we? But also, like, that was a classic example of, like, this is SOP. This yeah. is standard operating procedure, and you're ripping it to make it sound sinister and weird. How about and walking there's a in, lot of that on Twitter. Two days ago, I walked in. I had a, an appointment in yeah. the West Wing. I cover the White House, by the way. That's my job, right? I'm walking into the West Wing, and a, a, a reporter who I won't name tweets, Glenn Thrush seen – escorted into the, into the West Wing, I then get three emails from bookers who are like, we want to talk to you about your interview with the president. And it's like, I'm just doing my job. There's a certain absurdity. And he was not there interviewing that, the no. president, to That's be clear. That's absurd but harmless, right? I mean, I, it does feel right. to me like there's there's always been, as long as we've been doing this, there have been yeah. political operatives, and Fox is in many ways a political operation. 
cynically working the refs and and yeah and claiming that we aren't you know claiming saying things that they know aren't true. That's right. about our motives and how we're trying to do our jobs. It does seem like they've managed to. They were always kind of in on the joke and would want to buy you a drink at no, the end of the right. day. They, I think they've managed now to set to basically transmit that to a broader audience that doesn't realize that they're winking. Yeah. You know, and doesn't that, realize that's that, my point. That, that they think that, that they they know they're in on the joke that they want to buy you a drink. That, you know, that the president of the United States also wants to well, but you this to be is a the, therapist. But this is the problem too: yeah. is that the president of the United States, the, the president of the United States, deploys the same tactics, and his followers don't realize that like this is actually like a game that he's playing. I mean, he when he runs out and does fake news, I don't watch CNN anymore. He watches CNN all the time. Don Lemon and, like, every yeah, night. Yeah, and like, and so he's not appointment viewing. It's at the the idea that. But his followers don't. Right, his followers don't get that this is a this is an act, and that's or some. I think a lot of them do. I no, think, I don't. Know, I think some of them do. I don't think a lot. And like, and yeah. I think that that's the danger. On that cheerful note, I know. <laughs> God save the USA. Yeah, who who thought we'd be here <laughs> in this particular darkened it's basement? Pretty, but, um, you know what? It's a it's a pretty interesting moment in time oh, for like, all of us to be covering. So I feel I feel very lucky. It's hard to rip yourself away. Exactly. It's true. And if it wasn't for you too, I don't think I'd be doing this. I'd be, you know. What would you be doing? Glenn? What would you be doing? <laughs> I'd be screaming at the TV, which is kind of what you, I get I was paid to say, do that's, now. That's that's what so. that's what we do to each other. Right. Scream at, scream at each other instead of the TV. Newsfeed is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, and Meredith Kennedy. 